generation God gives strength in loving arms Scatters the proud of the nations In the thoughts of their hearts God takes the powerful from their thrones And lifts up the lowly God fills the hungry Ours is not the struggle of one day, one week, or one year. Ours is not the struggle of one judicial appointment or presidential term. Ours is the struggle of a lifetime, or maybe even many lifetimes. And each one of us in every generation must do our part. The legendary civil rights leader, Representative John Lewis. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm Katherine Young. This is our sixth episode in our series Born Black. We are honored to have as our featured guest Dr. Stephen Farrow. Welcome, Dr. Farrow. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Farrah is the executive director of the National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute of Mississippi. Dr. Farrah completed medical school, internal medicine residence, and endocrinology fellowship at the Wayne State University School of Medicine. He also did an internship at the University of Michigan and an endocrinology clinical and research elective at the National Institute of Health. Dr. Farrow earned an executive master's degree in U.S. and International Business Administration from Vanderbilt University's Owen School of Business. He is affiliated with the Veteran Affairs of Gulf Coast Veterans Healthcare System and Chief Medical Services. Welcome again, Dr. Farrow. Thank you. So, Dr. Farrell, we want to begin um, by talking a little bit about um, your work with the National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute of Mississippi. Mississippi is in the nation's top three for diabetes prevalence and number one for obesity. Is there a single overarching explanation for why Mississippi has such high numbers of diabetes and obesity? That's a very good question that scientists, sociologists, policymakers, and everyday citizens are trying to understand. There are 15 states in the national diabetes belt. These 15 states are focused generally in the Southeast United States. Uh, coincidentally, there are also um, 11 states in the stroke belt and 13 states in what could be considered the obesity belt. And these two additional belts are located in the same geographic area. Uh, as you mentioned, Mississippi is number one nationally for diabetes, I'm sorry, for obesity. And we actually uh, compete vigorously for number one in uh, type two diabetes, which is diabetes that's associated with obesity. Uh, a few years ago, we were actually number one, and we jostled with a couple of other states for that uh, unfortunate distinction. Hmm. Coincidentally, also, we are number one for childhood obesity. <clears throat> the association with between obesity and type 2 diabetes is extraordinarily strong. It's hmm. very well known. Uh, in fact, one of Indori's National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute's major missions is to identify, to discover a cure for diabetes and obesity. Uh, the uh, appetite is driven from a um, central nervous system area of the brain. And our one of our hypotheses is that by uh, modulating the activity of that particular area, we may be able to control appetite and hence alter a person's risk for diabetes. All that said, uh, the association between weight and blood sugar, and by the way, liver disease as well, is very, very strong. Uh, we do observe the statistical increase in this area. There are many, many possible reasons why. 
um, activity is felt to play a role, although that's not the most important factor in terms of weight. Uh, diet is certainly a factor, and um, there is an association between this increased risk and other socioeconomic indicators such as um, educational level, um, degree of um, in-term income in a particular area. Mm-hmm. So all these factors play a role, but um, the, the key piece for us is trying to understand the drivers for weight and the associated link between diabetes, and if we can identify those, then we can come up with a cure. And Dr. Farrow, I read that obesity in Mississippi is um, an uncontrolled epidemic. So one out of every three adults in Mississippi are considered obese. Um, that's a lot of fat people. So according to, if, if, if I looked at the total popu- adult population in Mississippi and you calculate the percentage, that means that there's roughly 749,000 obese people in Mississippi alone. So why is this such a serious issue? I mean, it seems serious. I'm just curious. Like, for example, first, how does this affect the health of the individual? You've touched on a little bit, but if you'll expand more on obesity and other health issues related to or as a result of being obese. Yes, um, we all have uh, met individuals who were burdened by the challenge of carrying tremendously increased weight. Just the fact that a person needs to be mobile with that challenge uh, predisposes you to developing arthritis, um, uh, uh, joint disease in the, in the knees and other uh, joints within the body. Uh, the um, increased weight can also affect your respirations and lead to a disorder called sleep apnea, which by itself presents challenges to the heart. Uh, these individuals may also be predisposed to cardiovascular disease through um, abnormal lipid profiles that can be harmful to the circulation. They're predisposed to liver disease, which can start out as a what's called a fatty liver state and can actually ultimately proceed to cirrhosis and liver failure in some circumstances. Uh, because obesity predisposes to diabetes, the combination can lead to um, cardiovascular disease, the three of these can lead to kidney disease and ultimately kidney failure and the need for dialysis. Uh, you can also suffer blindness, strokes, uh, and the need for um, amputations due to poor circulation. Oh. So there's a long litany of problems that can develop which have serious implications for a person's ability to be independent and um, productive in the workplace. And uh, as a result, um, Mississippi and the Southeast U.S. in general are very challenged. It's a very important that we can overcome these. Oh, I'm sorry. One other thing. In the, in the age of COVID, we have all read that people with diabetes and obesity have a tremendous predisposition to very poor outcomes when exposed or infected with COVID-19. So this is an absolutely huge and current challenge we're trying to understand and people are working to um, identify solutions for. So so do we understand yet? I know we don't even understand COVID um, and the impact that that has on our um, bodies, long-term effects from COVID, but is, is there a reason in particular why COVID is so much more dangerous for people who are obese or who have diabetes? The initial thought was that COVID enters your body through the lungs and it causes a devastating pneumonia. You remember that there was national concern about the availability of ventilators to help these people with respiratory failure. Yes. So COVID still affects the lungs. But as we learn more and more, many are theorizing that the true damage from COVID comes first from alterations in your blood vessels themselves so that your lungs may take in oxygen, but the blood vessels supplying the lungs are so narrow or so damaged that the oxygen cannot get through into the bloodstream to supply the rest of the body. So that is kind of a novel finding in the setting of pulmonary disease. Uh, We also understand that when the body is exposed to COVID, there is something described technically as a cytokine storm. 
basically cytokines are uh, anti-infectious proteins that the body produces to try and neutralize um, dangerous agents. Well, if those, the release of those agents is not controlled, then areas of the body that are otherwise um, functioning normally can also be damaged. I mentioned earlier the relationship between obesity, diabetes, and fatty liver disease. The liver is one of the major organs that's responsible for fighting infections, and it produces these cytokines. So when the liver is not working well, it is possible that the liver just releases a ton of these things in an unregulated manner. Uh, these cytokines may attack COVID virus, but it may also harm the body's normal function, which it makes it more likely that COVID is going to cause disease in other places. By the way, it's also well known that COVID can predispose individuals to strokes, potentially heart attacks, and um, other types of problems. You've heard uh, in the news people mention that COVID-infected individuals may present with flu toes or flu fingers. All these are vascular issues. Uh, diabetes uh, has severe um, effects on vascular function and interferes with normal activity of the blood vessel system. So again, a very complex situation, but when your uh, immunity and liver function to fight infection is disordered, when your circulation is disordered, when your um, blood sugar is disordered as well, that makes an ideal environment for COVID and other um, infectious agents that may follow it to wreak harm. So when we look at um, structural racism, and a, and a lot of people um, haven't placed a lot of emphasis on stress and, and how it is associated with our overall health and, and racism and how the lack of access to care that leads to some of these disparities exist in the healthcare system, including racial bias, um, how, what is your opinion as to how all of this plays into our, our structural and systemic racism that we see because inadvertently it affects our health. Um, uh, one of, in, in Dory, the National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute has three um, major goals. The first goal, as we mentioned, is to discover cures for diabetes and obesity. Somebody's going to find a cure someday. Uh, that is definitely our goal. The state of Mississippi and um, um, leaders in higher education, leaders in health institutions and the general community uh, believed that since this was such a big problem and Mississippi is leading the nation in these issues, it makes sense to have a focused effort on curing these disorders. It's not to say that the other higher education institutions in higher education and the hospitals and professionals and investigators aren't doing a good job in addressing diabetes and obesity. However, um, those institutions have responsible for responsibility for the breadth of the health of the state. Indori is created specifically for these issues and we work with our partners across the spectrum, education, professional community, to bring together resources to solve this problem. It's not something we're doing ourselves and it's not something we're trying to displace anybody from. It's our job to marshal every resource available within the state and outside to, cause, to solve this problem. So that said, and related to your question, it turns out that Mississippi is economically challenged. The entire state um, does have um, uh, challenges in terms of um, um, state revenue um, due to um, to various issues that may um, result in, in lower incomes than average. If you look just at the pharmaceutical industry, the United States has more than a trillion dollars in annual um, financial activity related to pharmaceutical research discovery and um, manufacturing. Huh. Would you believe that Mississippi enjoys a billion dollars or less of that revenue, which basically suggests we have almost no activity. Uh, part of Indori's third plank is to promote industrial, um, it is actually to promote economic development in Mississippi. And I bring this up because as we look at disparities, there are many things that tend to coalesce. One is access to health care, as you mentioned. Yes. Another is educational level. A third is economic achievement 
and the quality of life in the workplace. As part of our effort um, to resolve the uh, diabetes and obesity challenge, we realize that it's not enough just to find the cure. If we can contribute to an overall enhancement in the quality of life and health in the state, we believe that those things by themselves will predispose individuals to greater access to care, uh, greater knowledge and understanding of what it takes to be healthy, and greater resources to accomplish that health. Did I understand you to say that Mississippi um, gets very little of the federal funds that are made available for uh, pharmaceutical purposes? We get very little of that money for research? This is, this is the economic, this is the pharmaceutical industry uh-huh. um, economic activity. Yes, that is correct. Wow, and it, that seems to be, um, not only is that um, off balance somewhat, we have, it appears to be since we are the um, have the largest number of obese people in the country out of all the states, that we would be uh, receiving in Mississippi a lot more attention and uh, monies to help develop um, avenues yes. which to address this issue. Yes, let me let me uh, correct a statement that I made. I said one billion dollars to Mississippi. Uh-huh. I'm just looking at the numbers. It's two point five billion. Okay. Nevertheless, yes. <laughs> you're looking at one point two trillion dollars nationally. Wow. And the U.S. median is eighty eight billion per state. Now again, that's a median. It's not an average. But two point five billion. Yes, that's that's almost nothing. Yes. Uh, we are extraordinarily low in terms of pharmaceutical-related jobs, in terms of uh, dollar productivity in the pharmaceutical industry, and in terms of clinical trials participation. People have, as you know, there are trials out, for example, for uh, new candidates for COVID vaccine. Yes. It's important that the people who develop the vaccine understand how the vaccine operate in certain populations. The basic genetics of any particular ethnic or racial group in the United States are the same. But there may be subtle differences related to the area that you live in uh, or other uh, aspects that constitute your socioeconomic situation as well as your biological situation, all of which need to be considered. The only way to understand those is by including people from your particular area or your background in a clinical trial. Uh, As I mentioned, Mississippi is among the lowest in the country in terms of clinical trials participation, which means that Mississippians, many of whom are African-American, are not represented. So when the uh, drug is finally approved, uh, we can say that the drug is generally safe and effective nationally. But when it comes to considering those caveats, we don't know what special thoughts need to be given in general to Mississippians. Fortunately, most of the time, it's not a big deal, Uh but it's still important to know. So, yes, in fact, the pharmaceutical industry in terms of manufacturer and um, clinical trials and drug evaluation is relatively low. This is a situation we think we are well poised to improve. The Endori group is poised to improve. What is the economic impact on our health system uh, in terms of our high number of obese individuals? good ballpark number for the costs of diabetes and obesity to Mississippi is at least $4 billion a year. So coming up with a cure, let's say that in a perfect world, diabetes and obesity went away. That's $4 billion plus that Mississippi has um, available to address other areas. It would be absolutely huge to have that problem go away. Even if we reduced the (laughs) severity of um, diabetes and obesity and the incidence by half, and you said, okay, there's $2 billion available. That only reflects state expenditures to treat the problem. It doesn't talk about lost corporate productivity, you know, people who have diabetes. As the diabetes progresses, the, uh, the um, corporation may have to spend more in terms of insurance expenditures. There is a greater risk of absenteeism a greater risk of decreased productivity, a greater risk of um, unrecoverable legacy costs due to people that are unable to work and go out on permanent disability. So all these issues um, ultimately cost the state more money 
we see the impact of the of the direct cost on healthcare in the four billion, but there are hidden costs which can be equally or uh, even more expensive. So not only does the state have a real interest in solving this problem, but um, the um, corporate community in Mississippi also has a major stake in solving this issue. I can see. I can see why. Would you? Could you clarify these uh, numbers for me, for our listening audience? Because these numbers are staggering to me. So I'd love it if you could determine if these figures are accurate or close to. But I recently read that um, the adult obesity rate in Mississippi has increased dramatically over the past years from 15% in 1990 to 35.6% in 2015. And if it continues um, at this rate of increase, we could reach 66.7% by 2030, that's just a staggering increase in adult obesity. Um, does those do those figures sound close? Um, I I will just mention to the audience that I actually grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and I moved to Mississippi on August 22, 2005. For those who may not appreciate the importance of that date. Hurricane Katrina hit one week later. Oh, yes. Nevertheless, my wife, my family, and I have been here since, and we absolutely love our neighbors. We love the people that we work with in the state. Absolutely wonderful place, despite the challenges and reputation that Mississippi has. Everybody has work they need to do, and I think that, um, you know, with the communication and the negotiation, uh, tremendous progress is being made. So I'm happy to be able to make a big contribution on the healthcare front, or at least that's what we're working to do. So, uh, and I just say that to say, um, you know, Mississippi is is highlighted for these particular diabetes and obesity problems. They shouldn't feel particularly self-conscious about that. Mm-hmm. This is a national epidemic. In fact, it's a global epidemic. The entire world is in experiencing an increase in obesity and, and an increase in diabetes. That said, to your question, yes, oh, since um, 1994, the national obesity rate has increased. Mississippi has pretty much led the pack, and we are well beyond the 2015 rates that you quoted. Uh, today, adult obesity in Mississippi has increased to 43%. Oh, wow. But the U.S. obesity rate has increased to 40%. Wow. Now, that by itself is is enough cause for worry. But the childhood obesity rate in Mississippi is something that we're really focused on as well. Even though we're an adult institute, we understand that these problems don't arise in adulthood. So if we can make a contribution to childhood healthier, we want to work with partners to do that as well. Childhood obesity in, in Mississippi is at 24%. Oh, no. The U.S. average is only 15%. So obese children very well may have an increased likelihood of becoming obese adults with diabetes. Do, do you find with that, liver failure? Do you find that families uh, that if the parents, if the adults are obese, do you anticipate that the children also would be obese? Is there any correlation between those two things? Uh, Anecdotally and scientifically, uh, these problems tend to coalesce in families. That is correct. But as you bring that up, uh, that also points to a potential very important tool that various people have recognized and leveraged over time. If I understand that the um, child is at risk for developing or um, worsening a state of diabetes, but if I have the opportunity to educate that child on the um, Um, science of obesity and the science of nutrition, the science of physical activity and making appropriate dietary choices and how that can help. The child is likely to take that back to the family. And as they have their discussions, that child's um, updated knowledge may actually help the family itself improve. We have observed that, at least anecdotally, there may be literature that supports that. I'm not aware of it. But absolutely, we think that that is is an important avenue to helping improve the uh, nutritional and and state of weight of Mississippians. 
I'm curious, how are you able to work with these children that have the propensity to be obese? Do you, um, do you have workshops? Uh, are you in the schools presenting special programs? Do you have materials that you distribute to these children? How does that work? Uh, and Dory has not launched these activities yet. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Although other groups in Mississippi absolutely do work with the families at various levels. And as I mentioned, Endori is not a standalone institute. We work in partnership with many, many other agencies, uh, agencies that investigate or uh, promote um, mother and child health. Uh, it's a very important partnership of ours. The uh, um, Mississippi uh, Diabetes Coalition is another, and there are many, many others. Uh, so there are groups that actually do work directly with uh, families and children already. The Boys and Girls Club, even though it is not per se a healthcare institution, includes as part of its program an effort to make sure that children are educated on various aspects of health. I mention all that because in Dory, as we're starting out, I've been in this chair since January, and we're looking at um, um, how our program might uh, best serve the people in Mississippi as we pursue our research and our um, educational collaborations with professionals. Uh, the as I was a, when I grew up as a kid, I grew up in a single parent family. My mom had four sons. Uh, she actually worked three jobs to make sure that um, she was able to provide for us. As a result. Uh, she was busy a lot of the time. Fortunately, at that time, we had available to us organizations like the Boy Scouts, the um, boys clubs known at that time, okay. and also churches and other groups to, um, that promoted um, um, activities for children. The boys clubs in particular were a major um, contributor to um, successful development of my brothers and me. Uh, three brothers were boys of the year. We were also family of the year. We're appreciative of that. But I attended medical school in part on a Boys and Girls Club scholarship. Oh, wow. So all that said, yes, I'm very much steeped in Boys and Girls Club oh, culture, yeah. and I know what their potential is. Uh, it would be wonderful uh, if we would might have the opportunity to work with an organization like the Boys and Girls Clubs to be able to either introduce or enhance a healthcare curriculum that they might already have. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dory um, certainly um, has the, the knowledge and the ability to teach that. And um, if we had the opportunity to, to engage children and their parents in this type of education um, on an expanded level, we already do this generally for the community in partnership. But if we were able to do that on a more intense or focused level with uh, a child um, focused organization like that, we think that there could be measurable benefit. Well, Dr. Farrell, let's uh, switch gears just a little bit um, and tell our listeners a little bit about um, who you are and this great person um, that we're listening to. So would you just tell our listeners, where did you grow up? What were some of your experiences as a child? Um, why did you choose to study endocrinology and how obesity and, and now obesity and diabetes? And why here in Mississippi? And did you experience any difficulties as, as an African-American man growing up? Um, and how has that played a part in who you are today? I Good. I, I like that question. <laughs> loaded, um, loaded question. <laughs> the, um, when I walked in the door uh, of Indori after I retired from the VA after 30 years, um, essentially, back in January, um, and I was talking to the existing staff and we talked about uh, why Indori was created. And uh, certainly, by the way, I want to give credit to Joe Canizzaro. Joe Canizzaro is actually a Mississippi native. His father uh, was a, uh, a decorated military uh, physician in World War II who helped advance the MASH unit concept. But he's also actually a combat decorated veteran who uh, received awards thanks due to protecting his fellow soldiers from harm. Uh, when his, when VJ uh, um, uh, Canizzaro uh, left the military, he relocated first to Vicksburg and then moved to Biloxi where he opened an obstetrics, internal medicine, and surgical practice. 
and Joseph Canizero grew up um, uh, with that experience. Uh-huh. Uh, he's uh, actually done quite well in real estate, but as part of his um, his uh, legacy, he certainly wants to honor the accomplishments of his dad and give back to the state at the same time. So uh, he established what's called the Tradition Medical Community, where the Indori office is located. There's also a campus of the William Carey School of Medicine. I'm sorry, it's the School of Pharmacy, William Carey University School of Pharmacy, and some nursing training with them. And also the Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College School of Nursing are located there. We're expecting other uh, clinical and professional educational operations to join soon. There's a lot of residences there are many residences for professionals that are, exist or are under construction, and the state, um, New Mississippi State Veterans Home, has already broken ground to join the area. Oh. Ultimately, we will build a five-story, 100,000-square-foot research facility for ourselves to advance this research to cure diabetes and obesity and also to provide care while we're doing it. I think I read about this. So, this is called the Medical City this is the tradition medical city. We're okay. just north of Gulfport and Biloxi at the intersection of uh, U.S. 605 and U.S. 67. Yes. Yes. So I just throw that out to say that uh, family is very important. And I'm thrilled to be part of Endori because this new philosophy of respecting the culture but making a really visible difference in the lives and health of people is absolutely aligned. So coming from Detroit to Mississippi, uh, I understood that there were challenges as there are anywhere else in the country, and those challenges may be uniquely impacted by culture. So it's important for me to understand the culture and what people believe is important in order to be able to work with them in a way that is beneficial to them. In Detroit, um, I did have three brothers. Uh, My mother, as I mentioned, worked multiple jobs as a single parent. Uh, one life-changing event were the uh, civil disturbances of 1967. I remember tanks rolling down the street. Uh, the local bike shop at the corner uh, was burned uh, so that uh, they were no longer available to um, provide service for our, our bicycles. Mm-hmm. And so you could actually see the impact and the aftermath of these types of things. Uh, just to say that, um, you know, once you've actually been there, you tend to look at things in a slightly different light. Sure. Uh, at the same time, a um, community that was very diverse prior to the disturbances was ultimately um, um, no longer diverse and uh, suffered heavily as a result. So it made the challenge for my mom even more significant, which is one reason we really appreciate the presence of the Boys and Girls Club, Boy Scouts. Uh, and the church in our lives. Um, that The challenge of that situation never left me. I appreciate that it was the uh, generous volunteerism of adults in the area who certainly had their own priorities that allowed my brothers and me to have really, really good experiences that we would not have gotten had it not been for these volunteers. Uh, as a result, in subsequent years, I've, I've uh, tried to embrace volunteerism as part of my professional activities. Uh, I have worked as a mentor with the Boys and Girls Clubs uh, and with the Boy Scouts, uh, with um, ROTC up in Detroit. And uh, we also established a community foundation called the um, Community Health and Hypertension Research Education and Screaming, Screening Team. In this group, um, nearly 200 uh, volunteer physicians, nurses, medical students, varsity student-athletes, after appropriate training, went to churches in the Detroit area and just did blood pressure screening. Uh, This was a very constructive experience for the the professionals because they got to encounter populations that they might not meet on an ordinary basis. And it was also uh, constructive for the parishioners because they got to see people that they might not encounter in ordinary walks of life. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we had a wonderful time over the 20 years that this operation um, continued. And in fact, uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, awarded uh, our group and the VA associated with it with two awards called the Provider of Choice and Multicultural Workplace Awards for obvious reasons. But at that time, there was a tremendous um, appreciation for professionals who, even as they were accomplished and, and certainly um, heavily burdened in their own professional lives, were willing to step beyond that and help the community. 
So coming to Mississippi, and uh, why did we come to Mississippi? We came to Mississippi. My <laughs> wife and I were just doing a national drive, and we happened to see an ad for a position as a geriatrician um, at the uh, Biloxi VA. I'd spent a good 15 years up in Detroit, and we were looking at New Horizons. And I'd never thought about Mississippi in particular, but we saw the ad and figured we'd stop in and and, and uh, inquire. So I uh, went in with my resume and talked with uh, uh, Diane Knight, who happened to be the physician in charge of geriatrics here. Uh, we talked for a while. She looked at my resume and um, actually gave me some good professional advice, which I was very surprised to receive in an interview. As a result, talked to my wife and said, you know, there may be the opportunity to learn and grow here in Mississippi, although I'd never considered this. Yeah. And she said, yeah, I think you're right. So we decided to stay. And I will say that um, it's been a, a wonderful uh, experience over the past uh, 15 years. Wow. 20, yeah, 15 years. Children. Um, do you have children? It is not Yes, we do. Uh, daughter, uh, 26, uh, she um, is actually working at a nearby um, um, university hospital in, in um, information technology, and the son is an undergrad and also at a school. He's pursuing computer science and also art. Wow. The um, interesting thing about um, Mississippi, you know, in, in up north, you might have certain preconceived notions about, about culture in other places. Well, walking in the door, uh, it was very important to say, I don't know all the answers. I'm here to learn. I'm not here to tell you what to do. And as a result of being able to listen, I've learned a tremendous amount and had tremendous opportunity. Um, you know, I've gone from being a frontline physician to a service chief, acting chief of staff, and then to national director of a major national program and founding another program for the VA. Um, I won't say that these opportunities may not have happened had I stayed in Detroit. But I think that because of our relocation here and as a result of the challenges that Mississippi and in particular faced after Katrina, which uh, tremendously damaged the healthcare infrastructure here, there was an appreciation that we had come and stayed. And because we were able to do a good job, there was additional opportunity. It may just be a coincidence, but I just want to say that in spite of, um, you know, challenges that everybody experiences. It's been a wonderful, wonderful 15 years that we've spent here. I I do want to mention to our listening audience, for those who are not familiar with Katrina, uh, everyone here that lives in this part of the world is definitely (laughs) aware of Katrina. Um, But that was a a Category 5, and then it reduced as it hit New Orleans. It was a, I think it was a Category 4 hurricane, and it destroyed um, our uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast area, um, New Orleans, the dams broke. So um, I just want to remind our listening audience, because we were in 71 countries, that Katrina was a destructive and devastating uh, hurricane. So uh, God right. certainly and brought you to us at a wonderful time. And that perspective is important because... You know, I mean, we've not experienced a hurricane in Detroit, Michigan. They don't have it. Of course. But Mississippi being right on the Gulf Coast is routinely exposed to them. There was Hurricane Camille. There have been devastating hurricanes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Katrina was a record breaker. Yeah. But the bottom line is, like a week after we got here, uh, my family and I are speaking, you know, did we make a mistake? Maybe we need to go back. <laughs> but then we said... With all the destruction down here, you know, we really haven't lost a whole lot. We've just gotten here, but other people's lives have been completely upended. If we leave, um, you know, where does that leave the infrastructure? Let's stay here and see if we can help. Oh, my God. And that proved to be an absolutely wonderful decision to make because it has not, you know, selfishly speaking, it has paid dividends here. But we were happy that we were able to make a visible positive difference here. And that's something, you know, by extension, I'm very thrilled to be able to do in my new position with Endori now. Yes. Dr. Farrell, it is so um, good to hear you talk about um, some of the stuff that you're, you're really bringing light to. And I remember uh, last year uh, working on my doctorate in public health, um, 
I was able to look at the social determinants of health and actually was doing a paper on um, obesity and diabetes. And what was alarming um, to me that I found was that how public policies play a definite role in some of the issues that that we have. And one of the things that I found, and, and, and I'll mention maybe two of them, was the food desert and how um, big food chains and restaurants are located in the African-American communities and they are purposely put there um, for that reason and how uh, green spaces and, and walking trails are very limited in rural areas and, and, and how the safety and, and where we live is dictated by how um, we, are, we access food and, and our perception of health overall in general. So do you think there is a strong association of exposure to marketing of calorie-dense foods? Uh, and is there a risk factor in that, which I'm pretty sure you would probably say is a risk factor for obesity. And uh, is African-Americans primarily more responsive to some of these high-dollar targeted marketing that contributes to the greater obesity rate in us? Uh, that also is an interesting question, uh, and I understand that this is an international podcast, so I'm sure that our listeners um, outside the U.S. will be I'm paying very close attention. Back in, I believe it was 2003, uh, that CREST, Community Health and Hypertension Research Education and Screening Team, long name, that I mentioned earlier up in Detroit, um, that had the some 200 professional volunteers going out to churches, uh, was actually invited to the National Institutes of Health. The National Institutes of Health um, convened something called the Pan-American Hypertension Initiative, PAHI, P-A-H-I. That initiative was attended by Surgeons General or their representatives from every country in the Western Hemisphere, from Canada down to Argentina. So several, several countries are showing up. Uh, we were invited to present our experience with CREST uh, to help these countries understand how a successful and effective community outreach program staffed by professionals could be established and run with a very low budget. Remember, I said all of our folks were volunteers. Yeah, the occasional uh, investment from a pharmaceutical company, the occasional contribution from a corporation in the area, but by and large, these folks were working for free. In fact, the, the reward that they got was the opportunity to attend an accredited continuing medical education conference on some aspect of um, hypertension and, and health in the urban setting, focused on urban health. The progress that our planet makes in terms of um, technological advancement, manufacturing advancement, and overall sophistication and quality of life brings with it certain challenges. You know, if I don't have to go out in the field and work 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day and I make have the opportunity to make a living through less physically intense service or even, you know, a desk job, um, then that means that um, my body isn't burning calories. Now, I mentioned very early that exercise and physical activity by itself is not going to reverse weight loss. It's part of a plan, but it's not a solution in and of itself. However... If I have the opportunity to eat a lot more, whatever it is, and I'm cut, and I'm at the same time less active, then that presents a um, situation that um, increases my risk of gaining weight over time. Uh, as we look at the concept of food deserts, as I mentioned, I'm here in Clarksdale now. Some people will suggest that Clarksdale is a food desert, mm -hmm. but as we're driving through, we're seeing. Um, um, lush uh, green areas of farmland. We also understand that the Delta is highly regarded as a very fertile area in this country. So on the one hand, you've got an area that is agriculturally rich. On the other hand, you have an area that's regarded as a food desert. Uh, we think that um, 
that uh, this is not the only area in the country that faces this challenge. And we think that nationally, um, some of the issues that I brought up before, um, more efficient, um, uh, more effective uh, modes of working, uh, less laborious in, in many cases, with increased availability of calories of any type, will increase your risk of gaining weight. That said, um, when these types of things tend to develop over time, it may be sort of the frog in the um, boiling pot of water syndrome. Mm. Put the frog, frog in the pot of water at room temperature and the frog is just fine. You turn on the burner underneath, as the temperature gradually increases, the frog doesn't take note. And eventually the temperature is so high that the frog gets cooked. Whereas if you put the frog directly in a pot of boiling water, it would jump out right away. Uh-huh. These gradual improvements in some aspects of quality of life have occurred very slowly and with them shifts in economic priorities and determinations. Nobody, I would, I'll say most people probably did not recognize what the risk was down the road. But now that we see that these challenges are here, uh, Indori certainly as an initially state-sponsored program, by the way, and other state initiatives are looking back and saying, well, good heavens, we're now spending $4 billion on something that 25 years ago was not an issue. This is a crisis. Uh, that is why uh, the previous governor, three college presidents, and multiple community leaders said, we need this focused institute to solve a problem that has made Mississippi the worst in the nation. Uh, I don't think that um, ours is the only group who has recognized that. The other healthcare institutions have as well. But also, um, as a result of challenges in the economy over time, you know, highlighted by the current COVID situation where we've got a, a multi-million dollar state uh, loss of funds. Um, but nevertheless, uh, despite those challenges, recognizing that there are health issues that need to be addressed, I think that the conversation is changing. So now we can talk about those social determinants of health that people might have disregarded several years ago. It's important to have a loud voice in that discussion because not everybody is prepared to hear it. But I think that we are, you know, certainly have the evidence and we understand that the impact of these things is broad so that uh, by implementing uh, appropriate safeguards and countermeasures now, we can help decrease the spread of this epidemic. In Mississippi, it happens to be a largely African-American community that's, that's affected, but it's not just African-Americans. Depending on where you go in the country, there are other um, communities of various ethnicities and, and uh, races who also suffer from this. Um, and it's, you know, as the problem is allowed to fester, it will continue to creep up the socioeconomic ladder. So many people recognize it's important to nip this in the bud right now, and we're working to do that. Uh, industry can play a role. The education system can play a role. It's not just a healthcare problem. But uh, by working together, I think we can actually uh, make a dent in this and ultimately solve it. Dr. Farrell, Faith and Reason, um, and we use that name uh, deliberately because mm-hmm. we, we want um, our listening audience to learn how to think critically about how our faith informs us and how our faith guides us towards our response to others. And you're talking about it's not just uh, the health industry's uh, problem. I'm wondering, these seem to be justice issues for me, and we're very concerned about the injustice that is going on in this world, it seems to me, more than ever before. Um, And with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, these focuses on justice to right the wrongs seems to be um, of ultimate importance um, now more than ever. Ever, I'm wondering um, this this use of um, going into minority communities, and um, it almost feels like it's exploitation. So you go these uh, restaurants, these industries go into these um, areas, and they build these structures and then they market and then they advertise. Um, is that issue specifically being addressed because it is a justice issue? Uh, that 
particular subject is, is a little out of my wheelhouse, but I can share this with you. Um, one of the questions uh, that you asked earlier was what inspired me to be a physician. Right. Um, as I mentioned, or may not have mentioned, uh, among the jobs that my mom held was uh, work as a respiratory uh, therapist. They had different terminology in those days, but that's basically what she did. But as a result of those efforts, uh, that activity, when she um, spent time with us as kids, she would talk about her work. She would talk about the physicians and nurses, the other professionals that she worked with. Sometimes she'd talk about the patients in a hip appropriate way, by the way. Um, once she described uh, having had Rosa Parks as one of her patients. And I'm, oh. I'm amused by that because Rosa Parks and I were both born on February 4th. Oh. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yes. But um, as she shared that, uh, the, the overall message was that, um, you know, there are patients who come in with suffering. They don't want to be here, but they need help. And part of what she was able to do was contribute to some comfort for them and help them get back and, and regain independence. So at the same time that we're hearing these stories, a neighbor of ours who uh, was actually a um, journalist for the, I believe it was the Detroit News, a major uh, newspaper in the city of Detroit, and also wrote for the Catholic Archdiocese. Uh, he also wrote a book entitled Apostle, Apostle in a Top Hat. And this is a biography of uh, Frederick Ozanam. He was a French nobleman who um, established the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. So for those of you who may not be aware, Society of St. Vincent de Paul is basically a Catholic charity that uh, provides um, food, clothing, shelter, um, medical and social resources to the homeless and the less fortunate. So I'm a kid, and um, this man who writes this book uh, gives an autographed copy to me. I was probably five years old when we got it, maybe six. Oh, uh, I was probably, probably 10 years old the first time I read it. And I've read it many times, and I still have that copy today. And it's easily half a, good heavens, half a century later. Uh, but, you know, whenever I think about what I do, um, I try to keep that in mind. Uh, that said, um, I think that it, um, again, is important for, um, and, it, and it is valuable to society for all groups to have opportunity. And uh, in, in Dory's case in particular, we recognize that there's a statewide challenge. Uh, it may affect different areas of the state differently. You know, Jackson certainly has a different experience than, I don't know, Hattiesburg, which has a different experience than the Gulf Coast, which has a different experience than Meridian. But um, as a result of that book, I, I personally understand that being able to solve this challenges, challenge for the people who are most effective, most affected by it, actually offers tremendous benefit to everybody in the state and the statewide. Again, we were talking about the $4 billion that's spent on an illness, which if that illness went away, that's $4 billion that can be served to improve the quality of life for everybody here. So that said, um, you know, there, the economy functions the way it will, but um, the more education we can provide um, throughout the state, and especially in terms of healthcare, and the sooner we can provide solutions, that gives folks more flexibility in the choices that they make. It gives them more flexibility in the way they use their resources, and it gives more flexibility in terms of um, their understanding of, of the um, most helpful things they can do. Uh, the occasional um, activity may not be problematic, but the old um, state saying is all things in moderation. So, um, you know, as we promote or pursue our effort to solve the problem, there it would fall to other groups to be able to make sure that those other educational pieces are put in place. Thank you, Dr. Farrow. This is just a great reminder of the many challenges uh, that we faced, even as my work with Susan G. Coleman has been a challenge. But one of the great and rewarding things is the act of service um, to others and being able to be the voice of those that are voiceless, voiceless and bridging the gap and providing needed care for the underserved population. One day our descendants will think 
it incredible that we pay so much attention to things like the amount of melon in our skin or the shape of our eyes or the gender instead of the unique identities of, of each of us as complex human beings. Franklin Thomas, activist, philanthropist, and former president of the Ford Foundation. Dr. Farrell, I'd like to, before we close, if you have any um, thoughts that you would like to share with us um, to close out our podcast, that would be wonderful. Although you've already given us a plethora of information that we think would be most beneficial for us. But I want to give you an opportunity before we say goodbye to share something else with us if you would like. Uh, I first want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about our National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. Um, Joe Canizero's vision, the founder of Endori, uh, together, and I will mention with uh, Governor Phil Bryant, who worked very closely together with the state leaders to establish this institute, uh, I think showed tremendous foresight and understanding, even though they're not healthcare professionals in understanding that there is a big problem, you know, challenging our nation, which is which just happens to be, um, have its nucleus in Mississippi. When Mississippi solves this problem, not only will the entire Gulf Coast and the nation benefit, but also offer um, um, also insight and opportunity and solutions to the entire world. So I'm really, really happy to be part of this and I'm happy to get that message out. Uh, the other thing I would want to leverage is um, uh, your um, you know, closing remarks regarding service. I did mention St. Vincent de Paul. That's not the only service organization I've worked with. We've dealt with Kiwanis to the Philippine Medical Association and other groups. And we've had the opportunity to um, render service, frankly, on an international level. Uh, but I think the key is that um, you know, we understand that people are at different stages and positions in life. But um, you never know where your um, next helper solution is going to come from. Uh, and by doing the best job that you can, uh, if you're in a service position as I am, to um, render that service and to leverage your knowledge to the best possible extent to support humanity, then all people will benefit. Um, in particular, working in Mississippi, uh, this is a huge opportunity to move um, the health of the state forward and the health of every citizen in the state. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to have the chance to share that message uh, through you all with our colleagues throughout the world. Well, thank you. And um, it has just been a pleasure uh, talking with you today. I would like to uh, say it once again to our listening audience that if you would be interested in learning more about Dr. Farrell and his work as Executive Director of the National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute of Mississippi, I invite you to please visit their website at um, ndori.org, which of course is National Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. Um, Catherine, thank you for being here, and I had this thought, um, if uh, once we're out from uh, underneath the limitations of COVID, Dr. Fair, if you're available, I think Catherine and I just might make a road trip and head south to, uh, to have a visit. Not only are you invited, and we would love to be able to host you, uh, anybody on this call who wants to come by and, and see what we're doing, you know, we are in a growing phase right now, but we're moving very quickly. So what you see two years from now is going to be very different than what we have today. But we would love to have you come down. Beautiful. Catherine, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for making me a part of this series. And thank you, Dr. Farrell, for sharing your life and work at Endori. Um, and having a more open and candid conversations uh, with us today. It is, as it is much needed to move the needle uh, forward for our nation to make plausible changes for all. Again, this... Thank you very much. Thank you uh, to our listening audience as well. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason Seminars and Educational Programming, Additional funding provided by Wendland Cook Foundation, 
For home study materials designed to broaden one's awareness, please visit our website at www.faithandreason.org. children's children evermore.